Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour, and I can't tell you how excited I am today. I am joined by somebody whose work I have enjoyed and looked forward to for a number of years, uh, writer, producer, director, man about town, Mr. Dean Devlin. Thank you so much. So nice to be on the show. I, uh, I, I know I say I get excited about a lot of things uh, often, and I do, but there's an extra little bit of excitement that goes along with this because you have been uh, one of the creators of a variety of different products over the years that has directly impacted me in my consumption of pop culture media. Now, I'm sure you get stopped a lot uh, or, or talk to a lot about uh, Independence Day and uh, and uh, just a variety of different things. But for me, you first started into my viewing of pop culture much earlier, and I have seen one of the films that you were actually in probably Uh-oh. closer to 100 times. Anytime, oh, no. anytime I'm feeling bad, can you guess maybe which one it might be? I, I dare not. You were in a fantastic little 80s movie uh, called Real Genius. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, I have seen that a number of times. And ever since since that day, anytime I would see the name Dean Devlin associated with anything, okay, you were were a member of the cast that I really enjoyed. I've got to see it. And then when you went over to the other stuff, it's it's just always been really enjoyable. You know, the, the cinematographer of Real Genius was Vilmos Zygmunt. You oh. know, most people would never think of him as the, as the DP of that, that movie, but he was. Now, I'm only going to have one question about that movie, and this is just to settle a little internal thing that I've had for a number of years because I've seen it so many times. There's a single scene in that movie that has what appears to be a very famous actor walk by the camera. I don't know if you have the answer to this or not. But um, it very much looks like Tom Hanks has one frame that he walks by in the film. <laughs> and somebody pressured me to ask. Not, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I had a very unusual thing on that movie in that I had, I had screen tested for the lead role. Not, not Val Kilmer's part, but Gabe's part. Oh, And they had actually told me that I had the part. So I spent 24 hours celebrating only to get a call saying um they're actually going the other way i was like what <laughs> and the director felt so bad uh, uh uh martha coolidge she actually hired me on the movie as what she called an improv actor so she would just shove me onto the set at various times and tell me to go improv my way into the scene <laughs> so i spent three months working on the movie it was a great job of course 99% of all those hidden props ended up on the editing room floor. <laughs> well, that happens a lot, I'm sure, in, in most productions. But it was it was a really fun experience. That's too cool. Um, to kind of go more current, um, this the show that uh, we were going to focus on on this that's currently out, and I'm, I'm super excited uh, uh, about watching. I'm still kind of early into it, so I haven't gotten, gotten real far, but uh, almost paradise. Um, it's on the WGN network, correct? Um, so 
I noticed a couple different things uh, about this uh, show, and I kind of wanted to ask you uh, a few of them. So, one, you work with uh, Gary Rosen on this, correct? Yep. Now, yep. did you originally meet him from the Librarians uh, production? Or? No, no. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, back in the 1980s, uh, he was uh, a writer on a movie called DC Cab. Right. And my roommate at the time was actor Adam Baldwin, who was in that movie. And I was an actor in those days. And and Adam said, you've got to meet this guy, Gary Rosen. You guys are going to become fast friends. And I met Gary, and I kept telling him that I wanted to transition into writing. (coughs) Nobody took me seriously. Everybody made fun of me. Uh, But Gary was the one person who would sit down and... and criticize my work. And I really credit him as being my first writing teacher. And we've been friends ever since. That's too cool. Is it, in the creation of this show, is this kind of like a, a symbiotic thing? You guys are, are kind of both doing uh, certain aspects? Was it, uh, were you, uh, how does the writing process work with this? Because, you know, looking at the credits for the show, the individual episodes have divided to a, a variety of different writers. How do you create a property that, uh, and then kind of, kind of share it, share the creation process with so many other people? How does that work? That's the best part of television writing is you know you get this big room and you fill it up with writers, and you talk about the show and you talk about what you're trying to get done and everybody contributes and and we make each other laugh and we get each other excited, um, and then we divvy up the scripts, you know, but. Everybody works on everything. You know, everybody contributes. You know, they're, they're, uh, people whose names are not on the script contributed on every episode. And, you know, th- this one started actually many, many years ago when uh, I was on my honeymoon with my wife and we were in Hawaii. And I was watching the local news and there was a story about how these locals uh, uh, captured these drug dealers because they were tired of waiting for the police to do it. And it got me just thinking about island justice and island culture and, and island communities. And I, I went to Gary Rosen and I said, I, you know, I'd really like to write about this. And, and we did write it. And it, it took place in Hawaii. And when it was finished, we liked it, but we didn't love it. And we couldn't figure out why. And we kind of let it sit around for a while. And then one day I was talking with my wife about it. And she said, well, why did you really want to do it in the first place? I said, and I said, well, you know. I'm half Filipino and I, you know, and I, I, I relate to island culture. And my wife said, well, then why is it in Hawaii? Why isn't it in the Philippines? And that's when everything changed. That, then everything became clear. And I called Gary and I said, I know what's wrong with the show. And the minute we changed it to the Philippines, it suddenly got so much fresher and more interesting. You know, um, we've seen a lot of shows in Hawaii. We, right. This is the first show ever that is shot in the Philippines, the first American television series ever. And, you know, if you were to talk to most Americans about the Philippines, for the most part, they only know two things. They know Imelda Marcus had a crazy amount of shoes. Right. And they know that Manny Pacquiao is a great boxer. And that's kind of it. You know, so we we find that we're able to expose such amazing talent behind the camera, in front of the camera, amazing locations. Most people had no idea that there are some of the most beautiful resorts in the world in Hawaii. I mean, in uh, the Philippines. And that there's over 7,000 islands in the Philippines. I mean, it's, it's a really remarkable place that people know very little about. So 
for me, it's almost like doing a sci-fi in that I, I feel like we, we can take an audience to a whole nother world. So that actually kind of plays into one of the things I wanted to ask you. And exactly like you said, a lot of a lot of Americans just don't don't know much about the uh, the Philippines or the culture associated with it. How do you introduce uh, the beauty of a culture that people are unfamiliar with in that kind of a way? That's that's really so close. I mean, just really right next to us. But how do you how do you package it in such a way that that people will be able to to really experience it the way that that you might have in your past? Well, I think that's that's a great question. And that was really what we set out to do and figure out how the best way to do it. And, you know, what we were frightened of is it becoming a a, a cultural uh, a piece of medicine. You know, this is good for you to watch. And Gary and I really wanted that the style of show is an old, comfortable shoe. You know, we said, look, we're going to be in a, an edgy location with with brown skinned people that you've never met before and a culture you've never met before. So let's make the show feel like Rockford Files. You know, let's make it feel like a show that's very comfortable to watch. And by having our, our lead character being a, a real broken hero, his journey to heal himself is how he experiences the culture. And that allows the audience to experience that way. Kind of step into the shoes of the protagonist and uh, to vicariously be able to experience it then. Yeah, and hopefully if we love this character enough, we're rooting for his his health. We're rooting for his success and his healing process. And so that makes us more interested in these things that are going to heal him. Now, the the lead in this, Christian Kane, uh, you've worked with him on several. What was that? Never met him. Never met him, right. <laughs> so you've had, you've had a lot of experience with this gentleman. Um, uh, talked about... Uh, already uh well i guess didn't really talk about it but uh leverage obviously but uh you've uh you've had some other projects with them too have you just kind of, have you formed this kind of formation where you, when you think of uh specifically it's like you know this is the guy this is the guy we got to get because he he can kind of do anything what uh what has kind of created that that camaraderie that that um that belief in in such uh an awesome individual like uh, christian k <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing is, it's kind of like rep theater. You know, the longer you work with someone, you develop a, a shortcut language. Uh, uh, it, it's the devil, you know, and and it becomes a lot about trust, you know, and Christian, I've done over 120 hours of television together and he knows that I'm not going to make him look bad. But he also knows that each time out, I'm going to push him to do something he's never done before. And I think, in a way, he's willing to try things with me that he might not try with another director. Because he knows at the end of the day, I'm not going to let him look foolish. Um, and so this is a this is an interesting character, because on one hand, he's a tough guy. He's he's a undercover DEA agent superstar. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of it is he's been undercover so long he has no idea who he is. He, he hasn't had to pay his water bill in 20 years because that was all done by the department, you know, for his undercover activities. And so normal everyday life is the thing that stresses him out. If someone points a gun to his head, he actually relaxes. <laughs> <laughs> so 
this is this is kind of one of the things that I like about your work and, and kind of leads to one of the questions that uh, that I've got. Um, so the key the key with a lot of uh, a lot of writing to, to not get stale is to have characters that are nuanced and to be able to have layers. And I think it's one of the reasons that leverage was just so popular because I mean, sure, sure. you had you had the, the basic concept of the characters, but they each had real development over the course of the series and it enabled you to connect with them in aspects of their personality that uh, that made it very real, very tangible. Um, how do you, without giving anything away, <laughs> how do you plan on doing that kind of layering in this series? How does that, how does that mentality, I mean, you talked about him being a broken man and you know, that's, that's a common kind of um, concept, but how, how do you put that in such a way that people will latch on to an element and go, I, I get that. And I really want to see how that goes. Well, you know, I, it, it, while of course it starts with the writing, but it actually really develops in the production of it. Because what happens is you have an idea in your head of what you want to do, and then you start shooting your show. And then you start watching the footage come in, and you start seeing the actor's interpretation. And suddenly you see the actor do something unexpected. And then your imagination starts to run wild. Then you run back into the writer's room and go, well, wait a minute, what if his relationship with this person is different than what we talked about? What if what he really feels is this? And then it goes into another... And so it, it's an evolving thing. So, uh, yes, I, I've got amazing writers on the show, but Christian brings so much to it and the actors around him because they'll suddenly look at each other in a way that we didn't anticipate or they'll get angry about something in a way we didn't anticipate. And then that that sets us off and we start talking, oh, well, what's that about? You know, he, he looked at her all pissed off. What, what, what backstory is happening there that we don't know? And then, he has a daughter oh that's it and she reminds him of the daughter great now we're doing rewrites and so it's it's it, it's a real collaborative process deepening out these characters and and on leverage you know we had such great actors all of them and we start every year uh with them coming into the writer's room and talking about what they'd like their characters to be doing and we would pitch them what we wanted their characters to do and then we would all kind of like form it together and then over the course of the season it would continue to evolve so I, I do think the writing, it starts with the writing, but I don't think it ends there. I think, I think there's a great natural process that happens in the production. Now, has, has he worked it out to, to, to where you're going to be uh, needing to have him be musical again during the course of this series? Because that was one of the kind of the nice little, little things. I mean, that even all the way back when he was on Angel, uh, the, little, the little bit of music he was able to integrate there. And then again in Leverage, he has um, uh, that kind of charisma and that voice. Is that going to play a part in this show as well, or uh, are we not certain at this well, point? I made I made a promise to the fans who kept begging me. They said, there's got to be something like that this season. And I promised there would be, and there will be. Excellent. If you hang in there, if you're going you're gonna to get that little treat. Yeah, uh, I, I have to admit, I'm, 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 I'm a bit of a fan of, of, the, of the whole thing. Um, now, talking about the supporting characters, um, what kind of went in to, to finding the right people? You're talking about um, 
uh, being that collaborative process between the writers and the actors, what are you looking for in the surrounding characters to kind of pull that story together? Um, I mean, admittedly, one of the first things that just hit me is a small thing, but Ernesto's glasses, very 80s. I, I couldn't help it. it. They just kind of stood out there, and I loved it. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying to uh, catch up on a lot of stuff. I'm still early into it. But the, the, the Ernesto character is uh, a very quiet so far and kind of uh, being the, the stoic individual. And it seems like the meat of the um, – of the writing, at least in terms of uh, the communication, goes to the the Kai Mendoza character along with uh, Christian. So, so what 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 is this ingredients? What do you look for in this? So, as we said before, it starts in the writer's room. And when we were first conceiving this, we always saw our three main leads as the heart, the soul, and the brain. And Christian Kane as as this incredibly experienced undercover agent, he, he was the brains. He, he's kind of Sherlock Holmes in a way. He's got this, this analytic mind from having done it for so many years that he's brilliant at it. Kai Mendoza is the heart of the show because she's a police officer for all of the right reasons. She cares about her community. She wants to give back to her community. She wants to protect her community. She's an absolute idealist and incredibly principled. So to round that out was Ernesto as the soul. And he was, in many ways, representing uh, the community, representing the spirituality of the island. You know, he, he had a wider view than just what was at hand. And, and that's how these, these characters were going to balance with each other. So very early on, Christian Kane and I flew to the Philippines to audition actors. And when, um, uh, uh, when Art Akuna came up to audition, he actually took his glasses off to come do the audition. And both Christian and I looked at him and went, no, 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 keep those on. Keep those on. Those are great. Yeah. And when Art Acuna came on stage and, and uh, performed with, with Christian, when, when Sam Rochelle did, it was so obvious. I mean, they had such magical chemistry together. And Christian immediately was turning to me going, these are the ones, these are the ones. And I had to say, Christian, look, we're going to see a lot of people today. You got to you know, just calm down. But I knew it. He knew it. Yeah, the, the, those, are, those are awesome. It's, it's, they have their own personality. It's the fourth character of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one of the other things that I notice, and this is this is something I've noticed with multiples of your uh, shows. I, I hate to keep referencing back to previous ones as a, a comparison point to, uh, but um, so a lot of shows have trouble getting their legs under them in the in the early part. Even some of my favorites like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the first season is a little rough. It, it's taken a little while for everybody to to find their the rhythm and to get the the writing where it needs to be in a variety of different things. But I notice in shows like Leverage and I've seen it so far with Almost Paradise don't really see that same kind of issue. What is it that you're able to do to kind of avoid some of those those hitches that can sometimes the awkwardness of conversation or uh, scene structure that can sometimes be a problem? Well, look, to be honest, some of it's luck, um, but I think a lot of it is casting. You know, I, I think 80 percent of the work is done by casting the right people. You know, you could have the best script in the world, but if you've cast the wrong people, it's not going to work. And we've been really lucky. I mean, when, when we were doing Leverage at the TNT, there was a man named Michael Wright who was the head of the network. And Michael Wright was a former actor. 
And he understood performances in a way that most executives don't. He understood the creative process. And he didn't ever act as our boss on leverage. He always acted like a fanboy in a way, you know, much more like our partner than the, the, the person that we have to, to answer to. And I think that that helped a lot because suddenly we were all looking at the show from, from a place of, 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 of us wanting to watch it like a fan would watch it, as opposed to trying to think about market research and, you know, who's the biggest star and who's this or that. You know, I think if you can look at the work from the eyes of the people that you want to enjoy it, as opposed to some kind of sales tool or, or you know, a, a product, you know, we've never looked at our stuff as a product. We always, we always start with the same thing. You know, we're fanboys, and we go, "Well, what do we want to see?" And if nobody's making it, then we go make it. Yeah. Well, I can't remember who said it, but there, there's, a, there's a, a saying that talks about that every good story is a partnership between the writers and the audience. And if you can't make that connection, if you try to present it as just an object, it's almost doomed to fail from the start. I think that's 100% right. You know, I, I, I'll never forget my, 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 favorite, my favorite little fan moment um, on Independence Day was uh, when the movie had been out for a while, I, I was at Comic-Con and I was signing autographs. And he finally got up to me and I signed this, uh, the cover of the, the um, uh, poster that he had. And he just looked at me and he didn't know what to say. And he finally just said, you get it. And I looked at him and I go... I know what you're trying to say, because <laughs> I stood in the line to get autographs at this very convention a few years ago myself. Yeah, there's those who get it and those who don't. And, you know, some people make escapist entertainment because they think that it's, it's a road to commercial success and that maybe one day they can make the film that wins them an Oscar. But then there's guys like us who make genre entertainment because that's what we love. You know, I, 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 I love making genre entertainment as much as... Martin Scorsese likes to make art house movies. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's the level of passion is no different. So, you know, I think when when the work is approached from I really like this as opposed to I think this is going to make us a lot of money, it tends to always work better. Is that kind of the mission statement for uh, your company, uh, Electric Entertainment, um, to kind of approach things in that in that fashion? Because it seems like uh, it's it's very much uh, that that work of love. Well, love is the key word. You know, the, the great thing about electric entertainment is that we're independent. We don't have any investors. We're not owned by a studio. We're not a division of anybody. And we have one simple rule to green light a project. We got to fall in love with it. And sometimes we fall in love with stuff that really has no business <laughs> being made. But we become, we fall in love with it and we just decide to do it because luckily we can. You know, I mean... I remember when I started our, our foreign sales division, um, I, had, I hired this wonderful woman named Sonia Mehedenska, who does all of our foreign. And she asked me, you know, well, what is electric entertainment? You know, what is, what are we doing? And I said, well, look, we're genre focused. We tend to do science fiction, fantasy, adventure, thriller. And she goes, okay, I get it. And the very first movie I handed for her to sell worldwide was a movie that was entirely in Hebrew and in Tagalog, <laughs> <laughs> Filipino migrant workers in <laughs> in uh, uh, Israel. 
I like it. And she's like, what is this? And I said, just watch it. And at the end, she was crying. She goes, all right, fine. I'll try and sell it. Uh, but that's how it is. Our company. We, we fall in love with stuff, and then we do whatever we can to get it made. So uh, I saw you tweeted out um, recently that uh, there's an app that is available already on iOS and uh, will become available on uh, Android and like Fire Stick where you're going to be able to directly consume some of these things? Actually, it's available on all of them as of today. Oh. So you can it's on Roku, you can get it on Android, you can get it on, on your iPad, your iPhone, you can get it on your Fire Stick, uh, and soon there'll be apps for your uh, smart televisions. And uh, we, we've, we put out a channel about seven or eight months ago called Electric Now, and it plays on different platforms like Stir and Exumo, and we're about to debut on a few more. But we wanted to have our own app uh, for ease of getting the channel. And so now you can get the channel anytime you want. Our recommendation is turn it on, leave it on. <laughs> it's great to have on while you're doing all your housework. Uh, but it also has, is a platform where we can take all of our shows, not just the ones we've made, but also stuff that we distribute, and, and, and aggregate our fans. You know, So the, the people who love leverage, but they've never seen the librarians, can all be in one place. The people who love uh, librarians and never saw the triangle get to see the triangle. You know, so it's all of our stuff in one place, plus a whole bunch of other uh, pr product that we, uh, we do, including our podcast network uh, called the Electric Surge Podcast Network. Nice. Uh, and and we, we, we do shows on Star Trek, on Star Wars, on um, Doctor Who. We have a, a great show called The Best Movies Never Made, where we, we talk to filmmakers who, about the movies that they didn't ever get made. Um, but it's it really like a one-stop shop for people who like what we do. That's, that's awesome. Now, what is the, is there going to be a cost associated with this, like a kind of a monthly thing, or is it going to be advertising? How does this work? This is absolutely free. Uh, um, it's, it's all ad-supported, ad um, though there is a small section at the back where you can purchase stuff if you don't want to watch commercials. And then there's also certain product that we're not allowed to give out for free yet. And so they're, they're like, for instance, Almost Paradise, we're not allowed to do that yet, but you can purchase it in that part. But I, it, I'd say 90% of what's on there is absolutely free. It's free to download. You don't even have to register if, if, if registering makes you uptight. It's just if you do register on the, on the app, you get a bunch of extra features. Like you can, create, uh, uh, you can create lists for things you want to watch later. You can, you can stop watching on your iPhone and pick it up later on your Roku. You know, things like that. That's that's very convenient, and uh, uh, the the ease of access will definitely be uh, appreciated. I'm I'm sure of that. Um, now I do have some kind of ancillary questions that have been bubbling in my mind for a number of years, um, but the the first that I must ask, and we uh, my co-host and I we have this ongoing discussion where I am uh, constantly trying to convince him that Matthew Broderick is a fantastic actor. <laughs> And he will not believe me. Now uh -huh. I have I have somebody that has worked with him, uh, uh, Godzilla, correct? Mm -hmm. What yep. What did you think about uh, What do you think about Matthew Broderick? So I'm going to oh, put I, put you I on the spot. The world of Matthew. I think the world of Matthew. I think he's a unique talent. He can do television. He can do movies. He can do Broadway. Uh, and and literally one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. You know. Uh, you know, unfortunately, on Godzilla, we tried an experiment in the writing that was a huge mistake, and, and it hurt the movie and it hurt the characters. But 
it certainly wasn't his work no. that that hurt it. That 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 would be perfect. I'm going to take a snippet of that, and I'm going to make it. I'm going to sneak into his phone and make it my text messaging and phone call. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I remember when that movie came out, and I I saw it, it's like, hmm, that's an interesting design for the the Godzilla creature, and it's like, I wonder how the the real purists are going to take that and. Yeah, they didn't like it. They didn't like it very much, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Like I think if it was called anything else, it would have gotten a, a much better <laughs> response. But uh, oh. yeah, well, I realized we could have saved a lot of money and put a guy in a rubber suit and had a much bigger success. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other one of the other questions that I've had, uh, uh, talking about those things that are kind of formative in in the one wonderful sections of the pop culture brain that that some of us have. Your work on um, Stargate mm-hmm. was, uh, I mean, that, that was a fantastic film. And then it was turned into a series of television shows. Um, what was that like to kind of see that response from that? They, they liked the concept so much. Give us another like 15 years of this. It, what was that experience? Well, you know, I, I had a very mixed relationship with with the series because obviously you know uh, uh roland emmerich and i wrote the movie and i produced it he directed it i got to direct second unit and it was our first big success you know it was, it was an international success and a movie we did 100 percent independently mm-hmm. but the people who financed the movie for us they sold their rights to mgm and then MGM decided to do the TV series. Now, at first, we were thrilled about it until they told us they didn't want us involved in the series. Uh, yeah. So, so then you find yourself watching your child being raised by foster parents. And in all honesty, I, I was very resentful and very angry about it for a long, long time. But I didn't watch any of the shows. So my criticism wasn't about the execution of the people who were doing it. It was simply... It's not my show anymore. It's not telling the story that I wanted to tell. And at that point, I still had two other movies I wanted to tell. I, you know, we, I had, we had designed it as a trilogy, and we never got to do the, the other parts. Well, the irony is, is that uh, uh, one of the men who, who was responsible for that was uh, 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 executive producer Jonathan Glasner. And we had avoided each other for years and years and years until finally I thought, well, this is ridiculous. And I called him up and I said, can, can we go have lunch? And, of course, we became fast friends and next thing I know, uh, he agrees to work on my TV series, uh, The Outpost. <laughs> and so now we, we, we're now in our third season of working together, and it's spectacular. And, and I love this guy; he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I was I was kind of wondering that because there always seemed to be there's a lot of stories behind that that series with with the way that MGM handled things and and a variety of other things because it's 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 a, a a story that just spans all over the place. And it obviously could only work if the core story was just awesome to begin with, which it was. And it had real appeal and, and it gave it legs for a much longer time. Although I must admit, I'm still sour about Stargate universe, which I thought was the, the best of the series, taking it in a slightly different, more serious direction. And that never got a chance to, to finish, but neither here nor there. I kind of wondered how that <laughs> That would that would play out. So you you said you had it originally in mind as a trilogy. What was the? Did you already kind of have formed what those other two movies would have been if they were ever created? 
Yeah, I mean, we never wrote them out, but we, we had a really good idea where we wanted to take part two and how we wanted to wrap it all up together in part three. You know, the first movie, you know, clearly leaned on, uh, you know, the Egyptian pyramids and who built the pyramids. The, the, the second part was going to lean into the Mayan culture and the Mayan pyramids and how those two things tie together. And then the third had a much bigger universe to it uh, that was going to expand things. So, we, you know, we had always wanted to. And in fact, a few years ago, we almost got to reboot the whole thing at MGM. And then and then things kind of went went south pretty quickly. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's always been a tragedy for me that I never got to finish telling that story. I, although I got to imagine it's probably a little bit like how George Lucas feels watching other people do Star Wars stuff. You know, he did well. He did well financially, but uh, it's got to it's got to sting a little bit. Yeah. You know, and that kind of here's here's a question that I can now ask somebody that's kind of entrenched in the creative process of putting these things together. What is your thoughts on how our current law structure is set up on the basically the rights to ideas, uh, things not going into the public domain nearly as quickly as they used to? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think it's a complicated thing because so much resources have to go into production now and marketing that it's hard to say at what point those who take those financial risks should lose their rights. But at the same time, it seems quite ridiculous that uh, an artist can lose all control of things they create. So I think there's always going to be a, a, a fight to, 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 to have a balance there. You know, I mean, the Europeans, I think, have a pretty interesting way that they handle it, you know, that for a long period of time, the, the artists don't have a whole lot of rights, but at a certain point, it all comes back to them. And if the, uh, the people who own these things want to maintain a good relationship with those, uh, uh, you know, with the talent, they're going to have to relicense it again after a certain amount of time, which I, I think makes a lot of sense. But it's, um, it's tricky. Because, look, I, I, I'm on both sides of that issue. You know, as a studio, we finance stuff and we put it together. And I know how hard it is. But also as a creator, it, it, it's tough to watch your, your babies leave you. Definitely so. So, okay. So let's, let's, let's go into the speculative, ridiculous question section of the interview. Uh, <laughs> your favorite part. Um, with the prevalence of universe-creating uh, series of movies that are out there, whether you're talking about the MCU or the attempt to do the same thing from DC movies, uh, the attempt to do so with uh, uh, horror movies linked in, uh, through a series of movies. If you had your um, dream option, if you were you know, not creating it yourself, but going to create a, a television show, a set of shows, a movie off of a pre-existing conceptual idea and create a universe out of it, what would it be? Oh, no question. Doctor Who. Uh. In two seconds. And you know, what's funny is that before it got rebooted back in 2005, uh, uh, Roland Emmerich and I had a deal at, um, at Sony in, in, in the year 2000. And I tried like hell to get that franchise. I wanted it so bad, but we could not wrestle it away from uh, the BBC. Uh, now, I, I think they did a phenomenal job rebooting it. I love what they've done. Um, but it makes me so darn jealous because I, I, I think there's an amazing cinematic universe 
within Doctor Who, and 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 uh, I don't think they do nearly enough with it of what they could do with it. Well, you've had some direct uh, experience with one of the the doctors yourself. You've had some uh, contact with David Tennant, right? I was fortunate enough to to direct David Tennant in a movie, but I have to tell you, I almost blew the whole damn thing because uh, before he agreed to do the movie, we had a Skype session, like you and I are doing right now. Uh, he was in he was in London, and I was in Los Angeles, and I was trying to make a good impression on him, and and. And, and seem like a powerful director who knew what he was doing. But, of course, I couldn't stop the fanboy in me from coming out. And at some point, I started gushing about him in Doctor Who. And to prove how much a fan I was, I opened up my shirt to show that I was wearing a Doctor Who t-shirt. Unfortunately, he looked at me and he goes, well, you know, that's the 11th Doctor, not the 10th, right? <laughs> It took me 20 minutes to wrestle my foot out of my mouth after that one. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But it's 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 very clear when, again, that, that kind of love, that, that connection with the story is there. And, and it's that seed in all of us. Well, I think it's all about passion. You know, if you truly feel passionate about the work you're doing, then there's a chance and only a chance that that passion can become infectious and other people might feel it. Um, and, and a lot of people won't feel it, by the way, yeah. you know, uh, my work certainly is not for everybody, hmm. but the people who get a kick out of the stuff I do, they tend to get a kick out of all the stuff I do because they share a certain sensibility, you know? Um, and then sometimes there's the offline, like my, my wife is not the biggest fan of my work to be honest with you, <laughs> but like almost paradise came on and she's gone nuts over it. So I said, Oh good. I finally got one that you love. <laughs> <laughs> you have that approval you've been seeking for some time. <laughs> I finally, I well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me today, and it has been a, a real treat for me personally, and uh, hopefully a treat for our listeners as well. Is there anything you want to make sure that you say before we uh, we cut off towards the sunset? Uh, oh, okay. Let me get all my plugs in. Well, first of all, Almost Paradise, Monday nights, WGNA, WGN America. Uh, if you don't have WGN America, ask your cable companies to give you WGN America. If they won't do it, you can get the show on Amazon. Uh, you, uh, you can purchase the show on Amazon. It's worth every penny, I promise you. Um, and, and then I also want to tell everyone, if, if you want to check out our app, you can go to our website at electricnow.tv, um, and you can access the whole app there. Or if you click the device button, you'll get links uh, of where you can download it for whatever devices you have. And, of course, you are on social media as well, correct? You're on Twitter. I'm on everything. You're on everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good way to go, to reach this, as many people as possible. I, I like it. I, I, I try, but uh, I, I'm, I'm starting to realize that um, my uh, attention span is just not, uh, not good enough for everything. <laughs> <laughs> but again, thank you so much for taking the time to be on and uh, we uh, wish you the best. And I, I know I, for one, will be front seat waiting for uh, your, your to see how this season plays out and see how future properties go forward. I know I've uh, enjoyed it in the past and I'm sure I will in the future. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.